This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Law Nation, we have attorney Eric Penn with us. Eric's a lawyer from Jacksonville, Texas, and he recently got an $89.6 million verdict in Houston against Warner Enterprises in a big trucking case. It was a tough case, and it was a good case, but the facts were challenging. And I wanted to talk to Eric about, you know, how did you do it? What did you do to work up a case and present a case that would be that compelling to a jury? He agreed to do it. I learned a lot. I think you will, too. And it's going to be useful to us and all of our practices. So I hope you enjoy the show today. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm good, Mike. Thank you. Uh, and now everybody wants to hear about your huge verdict, but before we get there, I want to hear a little bit more about you. Uh, so tell me a little bit about you. Well, I am a 42-year-old single dad of three that lives in Jacksonville, Texas. I've been practicing for almost 18 years. I've got a firm that um, primarily focuses on trucking cases, Texas, or anywhere else in the U.S., well, I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you get from, I just graduated from law school and I don't know what I'm doing, to, I just won an 89 point, what million dollar verdict? 89.7 if you're rounding to the nearest tenth, I guess. Plus interest. There you go. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that path. Well, so uh, I graduated from law school. I clerked for a judge in the Court of Criminal Appeals my first year out. I came back to what is my home area and worked for... Uh, and with my uncle for the first 11 years or so after that. And I've been out on my own for the past six years. Um, and since I've been out on my own, uh, I have done what I'm doing now, which is exclusive personal injury cases, but primarily focusing on trucking cases and a bit of product liability cases as well. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the 30,000-foot overview of my path from... 18 years ago, graduating to now. And what made you focus on trucking cases? You know, I uh, just have always enjoyed them. Um, We all, of course, can relate to sharing the roads with 18-wheelers every single day. It's something that we as uh, humans outside our lawyer offices can relate to, along with everybody else in the general public. I'll say that I had a lawyer that was a a kind of a mentor that told me very early on in my personal injury practice that, as a general rule, a case will never look as good as it did as the day you signed it up. And in my experience, that there's some certain validity to that. But one of the beautiful things about trucking cases is, generally speaking, that's not true. Uh, That's the one category of cases that consistently seem to get better the more you roll your sleeves up and dive in. and um, So that's obviously, in my experience, a fun aspect of doing these cases as well. That's been my experience, too. So how did you, I'm assuming you never drove a truck. I haven't. How did you get the knowledge you needed to do to take on and, and do a great job on trucking cases? You know, it's just an evolution. Um, you, you get a case or two and you just kind of dive in. Um, metaphorically as well and you start going to seminars and you start studying up and you um, make friends with people that have been doing it longer than you and you pick the phone up and you uh, have the audacity to say hey I need to uh, talk to you about this case and let me just pick your brain and uh, it just kind of snowballs from there and that's been my experience for probably the past I don't know when I took my first trucking case but probably the past dozen years or so and in my experience, I mean, to really do well in a trucking case, you have to have a couple things at least. One is you have to understand trucking. I mean, you have to understand the rules, the industry standards. If not, you can't prove what they did wrong. You can't tell the full story. And 
honestly, they can bamboozle you and pull things over you if you don't know what you're doing. My experience, too. But there's also a whole other set of skills that you have to have, and obviously your past recent success proves that you have it, and that's the ability to talk to a jury. What have you done to get, again, from being a, a, a kid right out of law school to now being an almost $90 million single case verdict winner? Uh, what have you done to develop your skills there? Well, so the, the, the last question we talked about was more, in my mind, answering the first part of your question of how in the world do you figure out all the issues you need to know about in a trucking case and how the rules and regulations work and industry standards and develop a relationship with experts in the industry that you need to have to successfully prosecute one of those cases. The second half of your question about how do you combine that with the ability to talk to a jury and uh, relate to a jury um, I went to Trial Lawyers College back in 2010. That's the Jerry Spence College? Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College. Um, I know that because I went there a long time ago, but not all the listeners know that. So that's why I'm got it. in there. Yep. So I went to, to Jerry's Trial Lawyers College in 2010 and spent the three or three and a half weeks at the ranch. Uh, that was a big deal in my professional life. Um, and I have always and continue to this day been a big believer in working with as, as many consultants um, as I can to, you know, this is cliche as so I get it, but to put as many tools in my toolkit as I can and um, have skills to fall back on and rely upon for each case, each witness, each situation, and just try to figure out what works best for me, um, which has all been very helpful. Uh, but I, I would say, again, kind of going back to the base of your question of you know, how have you gotten to the point where you can talk to a jury? Um, Charles College was the most influential there of just learning to, within myself, uh, get to a place where I can be what I consider an open book and be authentic and sincere and genuine to the point where real juries and real people that sit out there say, look, I don't know what's going on with this guy. Maybe I do agree with you, maybe I don't, but at least this guy's real. Uh, and that, in my experience, in my opinion, is probably the most important thing that any trial lawyer can learn, regardless of what kind of case they're trying. I'm a harder study and thicker-headed than most people. I, I needed the trial lawyers college, plus the working with Mike Luserman at his uh, three-core workshop was kind of what put me over the edge. Which, of course, you and I, I think we're in Chicago. With, That's right. Uh, we, I met you there. Luserman and Josh <laughs> Carton. And so... Yeah, similar concepts, working with uh, Mike and Josh. and That's funny. I, I forgot that that's where I met you because I've, I've met you at so many different things and never in Texas. It's like I think the first time I've had right. a conversation with you in the state where we both live. Funny how that works. But uh, I, I totally forgot that. But that, that to me was the, the – I don't remember. I had to give an opening statement when people were yelling all my insecurities into my ears. <laughs> and that has been the most transformative. It was not pleasant, but the most transformative uh, part of my practice. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and all that, you know, as you know, um, working with Michael and working with Josh Carton, uh, different spin but similar kind of base concepts of what we learn and work with at Trollers College, yeah. and so all very helpful to me as well. And so before you got to your, you know, your latest great victory, how many cases had you tried? You know, I should know this, and I, I, I can look it up and tell you exactly, but approximately 20 cases, okay. I'd say. And so I'm, I'm an 18-year lawyer, and, and I've averaged uh, at least one a year, maybe a bit more in, in my career. I guess that's the advantage of not taking a bunch of trash cases like I used to do. <laughs> you get to try more, but you don't get to put as much attention to each one. Right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this case then. Uh, what's the name of the case? So my clients uh, is Jennifer Blake and her three kids. So the style of the case is uh, Blake versus their driver's name was Ali, but Ali V. Werner. Okay. And tell me a little bit about the facts of the case. So the basic facts are my clients, um, I represent a mom and three kids who are all passengers in a Ford F-350. The, the, our truck is being driven by a close family friend. They had gone and run an errand uh, in Pecos, Texas, which was about an hour and a half where they lived. Uh, they were on their way back on Tuesday, December 30, 2014. They left Pecos about 3.30 in the afternoon as they were heading back to Midland, which is where they lived. <clears throat> about 10 miles outside of Odessa, uh, west of Odessa, they unknowingly to them hit an area where 
There have been freezing rain, creating black ice on the highway. Which you can't see. Which you can't see, which is why they call it black ice. Uh, ice that we can see we call ice. Right. The reason we created another name for it is because this is a phenomenon that we can't see. And uh, it's honestly the most dangerous or most hazardous road surface condition, in my opinion, there is. One, icy roads are in general, but two, a black icy road that you cannot see, a hazard that you cannot perceive and therefore can't react to is critically is, is uh, extremely dangerous. And then I read something interesting. I'm preparing for a similar case that in states like Texas, where we don't have it all the time throughout the winter, is even more dangerous because people aren't used to it. They're not practiced with it as in Michigan they would be. Absolutely. Um, Sorry to interrupt. But no, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a critical point. It, and this, uh, maybe it's a different case if it happens in Michigan or if it's even tried in Michigan, but it's not. It happened in Texas and it was yeah. tried in Houston, uh, in Harris County, Texas. Um, and I'm a born and raised Texan myself, and I can probably count on one hand the times that I've you know, ever encountered any type of black ice. Uh, and so it's a big deal. Um, so our driver, our vehicle had been in the black ice for approximately five miles, uh, didn't know it, hit a patch, lost control, spun through a grassy medium on I-20, came up into the left hand, uh, excuse me, the left lane, opposite bound lane of traffic. Uh, and was annihilated by a Warner 18-wheeler. So when you first hear those facts, um, you know, the first question I had and anybody that hears that has is what in the world did the 18-wheeler driver and the company that sponsored him do wrong to create this? Yeah, I was going to say, the, like, who did the police blame? So the crash report in this case had no fault on anybody. Oh, really? It was an unusual crash report in that sense. And so the police concluded that... There was nothing that the 18-wheeler driver could have done to avoid the crash, and there was no way that the driver of our vehicle could have known he was in black ice Okay, and therefore found uh, no contributing factors on either driver. That's unusual. The uh, Now, you know 98% at least of the plaintiff's lawyers in the state of Texas would have said no thank you to that case. I think that's probably accurate. What What is it that you saw that made you think, I want to look a little deeper instead of just saying no? So that's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Um, tragically and uh, unfortunately, very apparently up front, the injuries to my client and her three kids were devastating. Tell me about uh, that. Her youngest son, Zach, was seven and died three days after the crash. Um, her only daughter and middle child, Brianna, who was 12 at the time, when I was hired on the case, I think Brianna actually was still comatose and uh, in a vegetative state, but uh, it was clear she had, she survived, but she had a catastrophic brain injury uh, that rendered her a quadriplegic. And again, I think she was still probably even vegetative at the time. Hmm. Uh, and then even mom and Nathan, her oldest son, uh, suffered various orthopedic injuries, were ultimately diagnosed with mild traumatic brain injuries. Uh, and so the the point is, initially up front, it was tragically clear that the uh, damages that this family suffered were horrendous, and to use lawyer speak, the damage model was kind of off the charts. Uh, and so that's the first thing that you know, you, it was apparent when you, when the case walked in my door. The second thing is, even though the crash report did not fault the driver of the 18-wheeler, it did document that the road had black ice on it. And it documented that black ice is what caused the driver of our vehicle to lose control. So you and I know, doing this, um, there's two main rules and sources of industry rules that are on point in a case like this where you have icy roads, you have... 392.14 and the FMCSRs. And That's the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations? It is. Uh, we call it the Green Book. Right. Um, just because not everyone listens to this does trucking work. That's it. Fair enough, yes. Excuse me. I'm, I'm treating you like an expert. I'm making you speak English. Fair enough. Um, I don't like talking like a lawyer, so I appreciate, I appreciate the, <laughs> the, the reminder of that. So, yeah, there's two, two sources of uh, rules, one from the right. federal government Um and then we have the state CDL manuals or commercial driver's license manuals, as they're uh, uh, roughly called, that every single state in the union has one. And I knew that 
the federal rules said you have to exercise extreme caution in those conditions, and more importantly, and kind of on point, the state CDL manuals say that when you hit an icy road surface, you slow to a crawl, which in the trucking industry is defined as 15 miles an hour or less. Uh, and then more importantly, and secondly, you stop driving as soon as you can safely do so in those conditions. Um, and I could see the DPS photographs from the day of the crash at the scene. The damage to the vehicle that my clients were passengers in was massive. And in my lay opinion, it looked like that the speed differential between, you know, our truck and the 18-wheeler must have been, you know, kind of, it was massive as well. Certainly looked like, just from a lay uh, kind of opinion, that the truck must have been traveling much faster than 15 miles an hour. And so, kind of knowing those three facts, the severity of the injuries to my people, what the rules are for trucks in those conditions, and then uh, the what the photographs of the trucks in, or the property involved, I guess the vehicles involved, uh, said, look, this is a case that we need to go at least go do downloads, see what the speeds of the vehicles are, uh, preserve and capture the evidence that's around, and then let's see what we have. Now, I now understand your case, but my initial thought when I heard about it, I've been kind of following your case for a little over a year, was, well, so what if he's driving too fast? He's got the right of way. He didn't lose control. He, What could he have done to avoid the wreck? I mean, how did you address that? I mean, even in your own mind. Well, so our case was about everything but the three-second crash sequence. Okay. So in many ways, it's funny. We had observers of the trial kind of make the same comment, which I actually took as a compliment. Um, you've been out to work with Rodney Jew, so you yeah. kind of you understand with this concept too. Uh, we really did try two different cases in many respects. And the trucking company's case, and all they wanted to talk about was the three-second crash sequence uh, beginning when the, our truck hit the black ice, started to fishtail, goes to the median, and we have the crash. All of that, both reconstructionists agreed, was uh, a very quick sequence that lasted about three seconds. Uh, our case was about everything but that, um, in both, including both what happened prior to the start of the three seconds uh, crash sequence and what happened after the crash, as far as the trucking company's conduct post-crash we had a punitive damage claim that survived uh, summary judgment and went to the jury. And so uh, post-crash conduct is relevant to the concept of conscious indifference and a punitive claim. Um, and so, you know, as we know, the case is about what you make it about. Yeah. And so we made it about everything but the three-second crash sequence because, honestly, it's not a lawyer trick. It was the truth. Um the police officer agreed when he gave testimony in this case and explained his opinion that he wrote in the crash report that there was nothing that the 18-wheeler driver could have done to avoid the crash. All he was talking about was once that three-second crash sequence began. Right. He, he gave no opinions, and he made it crystal clear for the jury uh, about anything that happened before that three-second crash sequence or certainly after the crash because he didn't have any of that information. And as he said, and we agreed uh, completely it was appropriate, that that's all up for the jury to decide. And so once we dove in and started understanding what had gone on that day, what were the forecasted weather conditions that day, when the drivers and the trucking company made the route selection to go across I-20 in the first place, started looking at this guy's training uh, his relative experience, his supervision from a trucking company. And then you kind of started even peeling back even further from that and started looking at what safety systems that this company had in place or did not have in place from choices that were made, you know, sometimes even years prior to this crash. And you started putting it all together. And it told a story that was very powerful that said, we have a trucking company that are making choices and have been for years that did not put the safety of the rest of us that are sharing roads with these guys every day uh, at the forefront, and that's what they should have done, and the jury understood that story, and they ref they um, expressed their opinion of this company through this verdict, and it was crystal clear. Absolutely, and the jury that heard all the evidence understood that, and, and uh, I've engaged in some lively debate uh, with some other people on social media about this particular case, and one of the, the 
contentions I hear is like, well, but, you know, since it didn't matter, you know, who could say that they even could have avoided the wreck if they're going slower? And I guess you can say as a matter of physics, they wouldn't have got there. But what are the reasons for having this rule that you have to slow to crawl and get off the road when you can? Is it just so you don't lose control? Yeah, so let's do this. Let's, I'm going to take kind of both parts of your question, okay. and I'll try to take them in the same order you did. Um, as the first thing is to who's to say we're not going to have a crash, even if you had gone slower. Well, the beautiful uncontested answer to that question in our six-week jury trial was both accident reconstructionists agreed and <laughs> said if he had been going 15 miles an hour at any point prior to the start of the three-second crash sequence. In, in, in other words, let me say it kind of another way. If, you, if I gave you the summary, which we don't have time here today, right. of the 23 different things that we say this trucking company uh, and even, even the 11 more things we say this driver did on the day of the crash that were all negligent conduct, if you said, even if they blew through every single one of those, but if for whatever reason they finally got it right and decided to follow the rules that are designed to keep the rest of us that share the roads with these guys safe, and at that last minute or second at the start of that three-second crash sequence, he had slowed to 15 miles an hour. Both reconstructionists agreed that there would not have been a crash, there would have been no impact, and it wasn't even close. In fact, uh, Werner's reconstructionist, who was our go-to guy in all these cases, uh, testified that it was a mathematical fact that there would have been a no crash if he'd have been going 15 miles an hour, even as late as the start of that three-second crash sequence. Wow. So, that's the answer to your first question is to that was undisputed and it really was you and I know the only reason that uh, Andy Irwin agreed with that and you know gave us that testimony because it was true it was a mathematical fact yeah. uh, that uh, there would be no crash if you to follow the rules now all of these rules and when I say these rules again the two kind of primary foundational sources in the trucking industry are first the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations and then the CDL manual safety rules that come out of the and are required by the FMCSRs. Um, and the whole purpose of all of these rules are generally to protect all of us that share the roads with these guys every single day. Uh, and in fact, when you look in the green book that we all talk about, the Federal Motor Care Safety Regulations, um, the chapter that requires and, and sets all the standards out for commercial uh, driver's license manuals is chapter 383 and the very first sentence in the whole chapter says that the purpose of this chapter and all the rules in it are to prevent crashes and save lives yep. and so you know we talked to the jury about that at length that you know look hold the book up in front of them every single thing in here the whole purpose of it in general is to prevent crashes and save lives and it's for all the rest of us that are sharing the public roads with these guys and we load our kids up in our cars and get out there on the highways and so you, have, you start with that premise uh, that nobody can dispute. And, and even this trucking company, in this case, that disputed every possible thing you can imagine, had to agree with those general kind of foundational concepts. Then you start looking at the two source rules that say this is what a driver of an 18-wheeler is supposed to do when they hit hazardous conditions or icy road conditions, like in this case. And... It's, it was critical for the jury to understand, and they did, that the purpose of those rules is not so much because the 18-wheelers can lose uh, traction on slippery road surfaces. That certainly is one of the purposes. But it's even more so because we all know and have for decades that the rest of us in passenger vehicles that are not professionally trained drivers are more likely to lose control on those road surface conditions. And if that happens in front of a 30 or 40 ton 18 wheeler that's going highway speeds, we know what the, what the results are going to be to the people in the passenger vehicle. And so the purpose of these rules does not require or rely upon the 18 wheeler maintaining control. It says that these are so dangerous for all the rest of us sharing the roads with these guys that they have to slow down whether they can maintain traction or not under these types of conditions. And one of the, the uh, examples we kept talking to the jury about, just kind of using uh, popular culture and, and stuff that are on TV these days, is ice road truckers. Even if you hadn't seen the show, most of us have at least seen a, uh, a commercial and know what the program is. And 
we all know that an 18-wheeler can drive on an icy road and maintain traction. Uh, but the difference between the guys driving 18-wheelers and ice road truckers are they're not on our interstate highways in the lower 48, you know, driving at highway speeds with the rest of us and our kids in the car. Uh, and so when you have that happen, say, on I-20 in West Texas, uh, on a day where the National Weather Service, 12 hours before our crash, says there's going to be freezing rain creating uh, ice on the highways, making driving conditions extremely hazardous, that is so hazardous, we don't care if the 18-wheeler slips and slides or not. We say you have to soda crawl and get the hell off, excuse me, get off the road as soon as it's safe to do so for the protection of the rest of us for exactly what happened in this case. In fact, even if you look at the, uh, the, the DOT as a preventable accident manual, which is something they make for trucking companies when they look at their wrecks to say, okay, what happened here? How can we keep it from happening again? They say one of the dangers in icy roads is that other vehicles can lose control and I think that's such an important thing in trucking is that, you know, we're giving, as a society, these companies permission to put an 80,000-pound vehicle on the same highway with 4,000-pound vehicles and 3,000-pound vehicles. And, you know, the difference, you know, the 80,000-pound vehicle wins when those two hit. And so in exchange for being able to profit from doing that, from doing something that's potentially dangerous, is you have a set of rules you actually sign under oath you promise to follow. Uh, And uh, obviously... As you prove, jurors can understand it when they don't. But I'll be honest, even, okay, I'm, I'm going to take your case. I've got the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations. I've got the Commercial Driver's License Manual. Okay, the truck did wrong. You know, your driver may, have, may or may not have done wrong. I mean, if it's black ice, they can't see it. Well, maybe not. That's probably not enough to get an $89 million verdict and get joined in several liability, more than 51% on the trucking company. What do you do now? Okay, so you know I've got horrible damages. We know they broke a safety rule, but how do I find my case? How do I find what I'm going to tell the jury? What did you do? It is always about the company, right? So especially when you have a case where, as in this one, uh, our defendant was one of the largest trucking companies in the U.S. They've been in business for 65 years. Uh, These guys know what they're doing, and... They make a ton of money. They were a billion-dollar company with a $2 billion gross annual revenue running their roads up, I mean, trucks up and down our public highways. Um, And what jurors understand, and again, my case was a long trial, and so they sat through five weeks of evidence and another week of uh, arguments and deliberations, um, that... The companies, especially these big ones that put these trucks on the road and make the decisions to have the policies in place or not in place uh, that are designed to to either keep us safe or not, are much more responsible when something like this happens than the 24-year-old student driver that had been out of truck driving school for three weeks and had less than one week's worth of real-world experience, like in our case. How did you find all that stuff out? Well, you roll your sleeve up and you dive in. <laughs> so what do you do? That gets back to what we talked about earlier. These cases just generally get better and better the more work you do. So, you know, you start out with, we send, you know, you send all the discovery, the written discovery. You go through the dance where companies like this, they don't just say, okay, fine, here, here's all the answers. You go through the two or three motions to compel uh, that it always takes initially to get them to turn over what they should have in the first place. Um we spent a lot of time and effort and resources working this case up from the beginning. We took the case out to Rodney Jew and uh, before we took our first deposition. Um, Rodney Jew's a litigation strategist uh, out in California that's really good. I thanks to you, I've worked with him once, but not cheap. <laughs> not cheap, but you know, look, it's like everything else. You get a case and you're trying to justify what the case. Uh, will uh, allow as far as expenses and working with people to to maximize the value, and this one was one. Yeah, look, let me back up. You know, this is the type of case that you'll understand that when you decide to dive into a case like this, you pretty much understand and just make the decision up front that this case is going to have to be tried. Right. The damage model is so big, and at least... Uh, Everybody can understand on first blush the trucking company is going to think that they have a defensible case from a liability standpoint. 
And so the odds of them offering enough money that it would take to be meaningful for this family with this catastrophic of a damage model under these liability facts are just very small. Well, that's Eric Penn, because I'm going to be honest, a lot of lawyers, well, first of all, a lot of lawyers I know wouldn't take the case. Of the ones that take the case, I think 90% of them would have worked it up and whatever was offered before that trial, they would have thought, okay, well, I can get a million, two million dollars, don't spend too much money, let's get it done. Uh, but you didn't do that. No, I didn't because that didn't do any good to our client. Right. Um, at the end of the day, I've got uh, a mom and two surviving kids that were devastated, one of which is going to require 24-hour care for the rest of her life. And, um, you know, a couple million bucks literally does them no good. Yeah. And so you understand that up front, and you kind of grapple with that before you decide to take the case and dive in. And uh, if you, in my opinion, and what we did in this case and would do with this case, you know, if it walked in our door tomorrow, is you say, look, the, the, the only way I'm going to dive into this is if I can do it right and I can have meaningful result that helps these people that need it so much. And it was just... The setup of this case meant almost assuredly from the beginning, that means we're going to have to try the case. Awesome. So, Eric, what are some of the other things you did to do the work that you needed to discover the story to tell in this case? We did a whole bunch of work, and we might have talked about this before our break, but we did a whole bunch of work before we decided to start taking depositions in this case. Um, the first deposition we took was the safety director for Werner, and we'd spent a bunch of time and effort really developing the case before we did that, and it really paid off. And um, the, the bottom line is we were way more prepared than they were and she was for that initial deposition. It was very productive for us. So what kind of work did you do? Well, so we had, and I can't remember how many. We, I think we ended up doing probably 15 focus groups in this case. Uh, by the time it was all said and done. But we wow. had done at least one or two before that first deposition. We'd taken the case out to Rodney Jews, who we talked about earlier, and uh, spent a week out there working the case up. And so you spent a week case. just working on one case? Just one case before we took the first deposition in the case. Um, and so, so by then you already knew what industry standards, what literature, how to sequence things. We knew where we wanted to go, how to sequence things, and... Uh, the kind of roadmap that we thought we had from what we could tell from the case just from the written discovery phase that we'd gone through up to that point. And <clears throat> bottom line is we were way more prepared than either the company, their lawyer, or their safety director was when we started diving in with these depositions. Uh, and so that was, uh, that was critical <clears throat> and a big advantage for us. And then, you know, this case was interesting and had a had several nuances to it. As it turns out, one of the most significant ones was we took two corporate depositions first, and then we took the two drivers were the third and fourth depositions we took in this case. So there was a student driver behind the wheel at the time of our crash. He had a driver trainer uh, in the truck with him. When we took those two depositions, one of kind of the foundational uh, pieces of evidence and facts in this case that we did not expect to be in dispute, we learned for the first time, were in fact in dispute. And that is, both drivers, when they were deposed, said they never drove across one speck of ice on I-20 at any time from the time they left the yard in Dallas until the time of our crash. The roads were not icy, in other words. Um, The crash report documented the roads were icy. Um, Our client's course told us that that was a recollection once they were on the roads post-crash that they were icy and slippery and we just did not anticipate up until that point that that was going to be a contested issue in the case we hear these two drivers story that both say there was never any ice in the road and so we find that out for the first time that all of a sudden it is what do you do to address that so <clears throat> we again roll our sleeves up and kind of dove in um we said, okay, accept the challenge, and let's go just see what uh, the evidence is as far as uh, ice on the roads. And so there was an oilfield services yard that was adjacent to the crash site. I immediately went out there, knocked on their door, said, hey, here's what's going on. Were you guys out here this day? Yes, I was. What did you see? What do you remember? 
they heard the crash. They responded to the crash scene within 60 seconds of the crash was their estimate. Uh, and these guys described slipping and sliding across the highway to get to our clients in the vehicle. Oh, and I want to take a break. You, you, you said, stop you for a second, the, you went to the oil field place that happened by the wreck. Where the wreck happened? Ten miles west of Odessa. And where do you live? I live in Jacksonville, Texas. So which, how far did you have to go uh, to personally go and check on this uh, company? Well, it was about an hour and a half plane ride, and then, you know. But hundreds of miles. Hundreds of miles. Um and uh, that was our first indication that we had people on the scene almost instantaneously that said the roads were icy. We then started identifying other uh, people that responded to our scene. We ended up talking to every single first responder that was involved in this crash, whether it be a police officer, a firefighter, EMT, ambulance driver. Um, all of them confirmed and said in one more, uh, fashion or the other that the roadway was covered in ice. We then went out and said, okay, we found the National Weather Service winter storm warning that said 12 hours before our crash, there was going to be this huge area in West Texas, our, you know, Hector County, where the crash happened included, that was going to have freezing rain accumulating in the ice, making driving conditions extremely hazardous. Uh, we also saw that the warning that came out at 426 this morning says it will develop, meaning the freezing rain. They issued a warning at 2.50 that afternoon, which was approximately 100 minutes prior to our crash, that said the freezing rain has developed. Oh, wow. Uh, We all know that freezing rain is the condition that creates black ice. Um, And so we had this evidence that the ice was in the area for an hour and 40 minutes or so prior to our crash. We said, look, this can't be the only crash in this area with black ice conditions. And so we went out. And, and I would say, like, right there, most people would have stopped. Okay, we got them. The weather service said it. The people that came out there. You guys didn't stop there, though, did you? No, we didn't. Because, look, I mean, this is, a, this is a big case. It's a big company. they got all the resources in the world. And so we wanted to make sure we left no stone unturned. So we went and called the state of Texas. And we said, all right, let's start with the area that the National Weather Service said it was covered by the winter storm warning. Let's come from east to west, the same way that Warner Truck was going. Let's also start from Pecos, Texas, which is where our clients left from, and let's go west to east. And let's order every single crash report for this area on this date from the time of our crash or earlier. We said if it happened after our crash, it's not really relevant to understanding what was going on with road surface conditions uh, at or before, but if it was 430 or less, then let's order it and see what happens. And then we filtered those crash reports and said, all right, we only want to look at crash reports that document an icy road surface or ice somehow as a contributing factor to causing the crash. And once we kind of filtered through that, we found, I think there were 65 other crash reports. Wow. uh, Before hours on this day in this area, all but one of which were coming from the east to the west, which is the same direction that the Warner truck was coming, only one of which was west of our crash scene, meaning uh, the direction that our clients were coming prior to. Then we hired a meteorological expert that one of the things he did was he accessed federal databases or something called the National Climactic Data Center that is charged with creating and keeping statistics for weather events like this. And they documented hundreds of crashes in middle of the Nectar County on this date, all ice-related. Wow. Uh, And... Then we started looking at it, and out of these literally hundreds of crashes documented in 65 crash reports, um, not one of them involved an 18-wheeler losing control on icy roads. They all involved passenger vehicles losing control in black ice conditions on icy roads. Again, kind of going back to the foundational purposes of these rules, because we know that this is what happens in these type of conditions. I really normalized your, your driver, too, I think. Absolutely. He's doing the same thing that hundreds of other people were doing in this area, in this place at this time, unknowingly driving into black ice, losing control and having some form of crash. Now, the other thing we found was out of these hundreds of other people that did the same thing our driver did, there was not one other reported incidence of a death or catastrophic injury other than the people in our vehicle. And of course, the explanation for that is 
luckily for everybody else, and unfortunately for our people, the difference was that our people had the misfortune of doing the exact same thing as everybody else in front of an 18-wheeler driver that was not trained on the rules and was not following the rules. They were all designed to keep us safe in these conditions. Then we started digging even further, and when we started analyzing the 65 crash reports that we had, we found three sets that were very interesting to us, and here's why. They were all crashes where the police officer documented roadway covered in ice with real-time observations on the scene at the time. In other words, what would happen is this. We'd have these crash reports that would say there was a crash at 3 o'clock that afternoon. Well, the police officer wouldn't get there until 3.45. Werner's arguing, well... He may have said it was icy when he got there, but he can't tell us what it was like at 3 o'clock because he wasn't there. He didn't know. It wasn't a real-time observation. Well, three of these were police officers that were already on the scene, two of which were already on the scene for working a prior crash. They witnessed a second crash. So when that second crash happens and they document roadways covered in ice, we deck their depositions. They confirm, yeah, I was standing right there. It was real-time observation. So that took the knees or, or took the wind out of that type of argument from Warner. Um, out of these three crashes, they were at times, two of which were they were clearly before the Warner driver came through driving the same area. So we documented that this kid passed a crash on the side of the road with the car turned over upside down. Police officer responded to it with his emergent lights on, and this guy blows past it not once, not twice, but three different times prior to our crash scene. Out of the three of those... Two of those, interestingly, involve passenger vehicles that did the same thing we did. They hit black ice, they lose control, they go through the median into the opposite bound lane of traffic, and they get hit by the opposite bound lane. Nobody was injured in any of those two cars because those two cars, the, the, the people that hit those two cars are going slow. But most importantly in this case was one of those involved a crash that was 52 miles east of ours, but happened at basically the same time that the Warner driver came through there. There was a 74-year-old lady that was in the left lane, westbound, I-20. She comes around a corner. She's going approximately 70 miles an hour. There's an eight- to nine-car pileup, ice-related, in front of her in the interstate. She sees it. She hits her brake. She reacts to it. When she hits her brake, she loses control. She goes through the median into the opposite bound lane of traffic, and she gets hit by an 18-wheeler. This was also, again, witnessed by the police officer that was there working the pileup and saw it with his own two eyes. And so we ended up, it took us a while, it took us a long time actually, but we found all three of those people. We found the police officer that witnessed it, we found the 74-year-old lady that lost control, and we found the uh, truck driver that hit her. And what they told us was this. Her name was Helen Myers, I'll never forget her, a beautiful lady. And when I finally got her on the phone, she'd moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, and she said, yes, Eric, I remember that day. It was crazy. And I, asked, I told her why I was calling her and what uh, uh, my involvement was and, and asked her what her experience was in that crash. She said, Eric, I wasn't even sore the next day. Wow. And 74 years old. 74 <laughs> years old, who was going faster than our vehicle was in a smaller passenger vehicle, got hit by an 18-wheeler. And not only did she walk away, she came and testified to the jury the same thing she told me on that phone that day, that... I wasn't even sore the next day. You got her there live from Tulsa? Got her there live. How'd you do that? Uh, I said, ma'am, this is really important. I really appreciate you talking to me. And if there's any way I could get you to come to Houston and tell that jury in person, I'd love it. She said, absolutely, I'll be there. Wow. And then the last one, it took us a long time. He wasn't uh, a, um, I guess he was a reluctant witness. Right. Uh, But we finally found the truck driver that was involved in that crash. And... This was a 39-year professional driver that said, I recognized that I was in freezing rain. I recognized that the outside air temperature was below freezing, so I knew what that meant. I didn't. I couldn't 100% tell you that the roads were icy, but I knew all that kind of added together. They probably were. I had just passed another crash. All of that told me, more likely than not, the roads were icy. I know what the rules say. And he told us that at the time that Miss Myers came a criminal coming through the median, uh, and prior to the impact, he couldn't have been going any more than five miles an hour. Wow. 
And so the jury in this case, what we got to talk about is that the purpose of these rules, that we know the rest of us are more likely to do this and lose control in black ice conditions, and we know what the consequences are going to be if they're going highway speeds. This isn't a theoretical discussion. We have real-world, real-human-being examples on this place and this date at this time that show that when this rule is followed, it works to serve its purposes, which is to ultimately save lives. And so we had two different vehicles, passenger vehicles, do the exact same thing. One where the 39-year-old pro follows the rule and the 74-year-old lady's not even sore the next day. And in our case, where the three-week student driver that was unsupervised on a time run was not following the rules, and Zach died three days later, and Brianna was a quadriplegic to the point that she can't eat, walk, or talk for the rest oh, of her life. Oh, baby. So... I get now you how you show that that truck driver broke the rules, but when you the jury gave percentages after they gave the liability before they gave the dollar amount, what were the percentages? Seventy percent Werner, fourteen percent Werner's driver, sixteen percent the driver of our vehicle. So how was it then? You went from okay, Werner's driver didn't follow safety rules to. It being more than four times more of Warner's fault than their own driver's fault, or than the driver, frankly, that lost control and ended up in the wrong lane's fault. Well, and this is where, you know, if, if we had another hour in your podcast, I could do a better job answering <laughs> this, you know, for summarizing the, the evidence the jury saw for six weeks in this case. But the bottom line is the jury understood the concept that even though this 24 year old student driver, who is still held to the standard of a, a reasonably prudent commercial truck driver under the same or similar circumstances, didn't follow the rules and didn't do what he should have, that his responsibility paled in comparison to the 65-year trucking company, this you know $2 billion annual revenue trucking company that put him in the situation, didn't train him, didn't supervise him, put him on a time load that said this thing's got to be out in California in 26 hours, um, well, a trainer with him. I mean, wasn't he supposed to be watching him? He was. And you know where he was? No. He was asleep in the sleeper berth. And he had been that way since five hours prior to the crash. And it wasn't by accident. It was by design. Because they put him on a Justin Tribe road. So they're supposed to be training him. But if the sleeper, if the trainer doesn't sleep, then they can't get the load there in time? That's right. If he's in the passenger seat observing and training and supervising like he's supposed to be, he's, he's working. on the clock. And hours of service rules say that then he can't drive his overnight shift uh, when it's his turn to drive. And the only way you can get that 18-wheeler from Dallas to California in the time frame that they allotted was to have the wheels moving 24-7. And so this concept of sticking this kid in the situation unsupervised was not an accident. It was, it was the business model and by design. And it's one of the things the jury heard in this case was not only was that the business model for this run, that's the business model for this trucking company. And so this, they heard evidence that Werner has at anywhere from 80 to 100% annual turnover every year, meaning out of their 10,000 drivers, they hire anywhere from eight to 10,000 new ones every single year. Uh, and out of the new hires that they have on any annual basis, 50% of them are just like the student driver in this case, where they come straight from a truck driving school with zero real-world experience behind the wheel before they're hired. And so they've got a whole fleet of drivers that are similar to this where they have this business model of them sticking them in situations that they aren't prepared to handle based upon their training experience, and people are getting hurt and killed, and the jury heard that and said enough. Yeah, That's, one, scary, and two, speaks volumes about how these companies treat their own employees. I mean, the fact that most of them, like 100%, and the average lifespan of a truck driver working for Warner is less than a year. Uh, not lifespan, but career. Uh, so that means that it's such bad working conditions that despite the fact they pay good money, most of them go somewhere else in less than a year. It's crazy. It's a never-ending revolving door of drivers in and out. You have no continuity. Another way to illustrate that concept is, and the jury picked up on this, uh, rightfully so, was that the trainer in this case was very typical for Warner. But, you know, in, in our mind, I think in my mind and probably for most kind of lay people's mind, when you hear you got somebody that's going to be a trainer of new student drivers, 
you think of kind of an old old veteran, an old yeah, pro. Yeah, gray-haired guy. Gray-haired guy's been doing it a while. Well, the driver trainer in this case, at the time that Werner made him the trainer shortly before this crash, he had been a commercial driver for less than a year. Oh, my God. He'd held a CDL for nine whole months, three of which were working for Werner before they elevated him and promoted him to trainer. And he told us that the only training that they gave him after... Uh, nine months of being a, a commercial driver, just being now a trainer of people like this fresh out of driving school, was they sent him through a two-day orientation where it primarily consisted of teaching him how to do the paperwork to handle student drivers. Wow. And so, you know, the jury heard that not only was this student driver not prepared based upon his training or experience to handle the situation that they put him in on that day, but even his trainer was in the same boat. And people further up the line, even all the way up to the safety director, were consistently being put in situations that they were not prepared to handle uh, by this company. And it was all about the bottom line. And again, you know, we're kind of just tipping the or touching the tip of the iceberg here. But it showed a very consistent pattern of a company that made business decisions based upon the bottom line and not uh, based upon keeping the rest of us to share the roads with them safe. And the jury just said, again, this is this is enough. It's not okay. And I think that's some of the brilliance of how you earned this verdict was just so many lawyers would say, well, I've got the truck company negligent. I have respondent superior. I'm done. I'm going to go home and have a drink. And you worked a lot on this case. How many how many hours do you think you <laughs> You know, I honestly have no idea. Uh, I know we, we spent a bunch of money on expenses working it up. Uh, but, you know, again, it kind of goes back to the reality and threshold that we crossed at the very beginning of this case was that we had a family that was devastated. We had a 12-year-old girl that is, you know, needed care for the rest of her life. And if we were going to do any good for them, we were going to help them. It's going to have to be a big number. And the only way we were going to get a big number was through a jury. Uh, and we kind of worked it up from that way from the beginning, and um, uh, thankfully it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. I was, you know, kind of watching from afar. I, I played a witness in one of your mock trials, but didn't, you know, didn't actually work on your case. But I've seen, I mean, you worked harder than anyone. I've, and I've seen some great lawyers who did a lot of work, but I've never seen someone between the consultants you work with, the focus groups, the experts, but just the the flying to Odessa to see what the people saw in the, in the closest business, the interviewing every firefighter they got out there, the finding the 74-year-old lady that was in a wreck 50-something miles away to talk about her experience and finding the, the truck driver that was there and convincing that truck driver to testify. Uh, I've just never seen anyone work that hard, but I guess that's what it takes. If you want to win big, you've got to work hard. Well, first of all, I appreciate you saying that. And, and yes, that's my experience. And, um, you know, it was this was a... This was a tragic case like so many of these are. Uh, I love my clients, and I have not had a more gratifying professional experience than to take this case, which was very challenging, but to take these plaintiffs that were so deserving uh, and conversely take this trucking company that I also was think was equally deserving of the justice that this jury meted out uh, and to have the jury understand the case and deliver the justice that they did with this verdict was enormously satisfying. I just want to kind of close with the, you know, the the vast majority of the people listening to this and and myself included have not had an eighty nine million dollar verdict. Uh, so let's say we're starting off as a as a lawyer that's maybe trying the first carpet case and they want to work up the ranks to get to where you are. What are what are some things you recommend doing to get there? Dive in, right? So go try cases, go get experience in front of jurors, uh, go find what speaks to you, whether it be trialers college or go do reptile seminars or um, you know anybody else that you can just go ex- expose yourself to different ideas, different techniques, pick be audacious enough to pick the phone up and say, hey my, my name is you know Eric Penn. You don't know me, but I want to just spend a few minutes and pick your brain. If you don't mind, this is important, and I, I want to learn from you. And just dive in. And there's no substitute for experience, and, and that's, of course, experience trying cases. That's experience talking to people that have done it before, uh, working with various consultants, you know, working with anybody you can, and um, um, just just go stick your nose in as many things as you possibly can 
and then um, find out what you're good at, what works for you, um, and dive in. I agree. I agree. It's you know, and and some of these things are a little. It's a little bit of conflict to, to them because so if you want to get a bunch of trial experience, you know, the best way to do it is to go to a place where you try a lot of cases, which are typically cases that aren't as good. And, and I'm glad I did that early because I'm very comfortable in the courtroom. But I think where it took me a long time to get to is you also have to get into an environment if you really want to be great where you have time to work on a case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you were handling 100 cases, uh, you could not have put in the work you put into this one case. And, you know, trying to get to the point where you can either be in a place that has that kind of firm or be in a place where you're financially secure enough where you can turn down other opportunities and focus on something that's going to be your, your case. Uh, and I think that, you know, you just can't do a great job without putting the work in and you can't put the work in unless you structure your life where you have the time to put the work in. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a balance that takes all of us time to, you know, understand, first of all, and then try to figure out how you... Um, make it right, and it, we're all still learning. You know, I'm I'm still trying to figure out the right tweaks to to perfect that. You and I talked a little bit before you got started today about uh, you know the eighty twenty rule, and yeah. sometimes in my office it's more like the ninety ten rule. And I think that's really important to get to a place where you can kind of do that analysis. And the eighty twenty uh, rule is the principle that eighty percent of your results come from twenty percent of your work or twenty percent of your cases. Uh, yeah, that's right. And and, 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 and when I say 90-10, it's because when I went back and did the analysis to try to understand the 80-20 rule, it turned out really it was more like a 90-10 rule. And so, yeah, 90% of my income was coming from 10% of my cases. And so I said, well, why don't I do my best to make sure I spend 90% of my time on those, you know, 10% yeah. of the cases? And, you know, that's it's, – it's easier said than done, of course, but I think that's one of the things I've been – successful at you know for the past seven eight nine years in my practice is trying to get a lot closer to making sure i'm spending that you know the most of my the majority of my time on the cases that's produced the majority of the income that's my big struggle on one hand you know i want to spend most of my time in the top five cases but i literally brought in six cases today (laughs) <laughs> you know, they're all trucking and commercial vehicle cases. It's a, ter- all... it's a terrible problem to have. I well, I, I know that I shouldn't complain about it, but it's just one of those: should I take these cases? Should I not? You know. But luckily, we have a, a, a big enough firm where I can parse it out and coach on the ones that aren't the top five cases, and then try to spend my time on those that are. But uh, it's such a luxury to be able to actually work and do a case right. It feels so good. It really is, and, and you and I know this too. There's. Not only do you have to have your practice structured where you can you can make it work financially for you and make it work for your clients, but it's it's also so hard to find the cases that all those stars align. Uh, you know where you have the damage model that justifies it. You have a defendant that you can collect from. You have um, a defendant that you know sometimes puts up. Liability defenses that if you and I were defending cases, which we never would, but maybe we would defend it a bit differently. But they defend it in ways that, you know, add or create the opportunity for the jury to say this is just is not okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's there's countless others, but you got to have a good venue. You got to have a judge that's going to treat you fairly. Um, but when you do have all those stars align, it is really nice to have a practice where you can say, look, this is the case that. I'm going to spend the amount of time and the amount of resources that it needs to do it right. Uh, and it's really gratifying. And this, thankfully, was one of those cases where we kind of did that from start to finish. And uh, the results um, proved that that was a case worthy of that decision. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I've learned quite a bit. I'm hoping that everyone listening did too. Uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, they, they, they were one of ask a question or more importantly someone has a good case and maybe the stars are in the line and they said well Eric Penn got $89 million on a case that seemed impossible what could he do with a good one <laughs> uh, how do they get a hold of you yeah so it's uh, you know my website I think it's this, the pennlawfirm.com and um, P-E-N-N P-E-N-N there'll be a you know of course a phone number and an email address on there and I'm happy to um, you know just talk through again I have am standing on the shoulders of the people that you know, 10 to 15 years ago in my career, I literally called them up out of the blue and said, you don't know me, but I want to borrow some of your time. And they were gracious enough to give that to me. And so I'm very happy 
uh, to talk to anybody that's got a case they want to just kind of chew over, please give me a call. Thank you, Eric. I've really enjoyed talking to you. All right, Mike. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our episode with Eric Penn today. You know, Eric really reminds me that when you work hard and pay attention to a case and do all the right things, good things happen. Uh, We all need to make time at our firms to really put the effort in in our big cases or our our best cases so that we can give our clients the results that they they deserve. Uh, We're going to go to a different topic next week, how to get those good cases. And we have a renowned person in legal marketing, a guy named Ben Glass. Ben's a lawyer out of Virginia, but he also has a company you may have heard of, Great Legal Marketing. Uh, We've had several requests to do more on marketing, and Ben, honestly, is the person that inspired me to get started on my journey to market. And, you know, we have gone from having a firm that did, you know, smaller cases and car wrecks along with a few big cases to a firm that now only does bigger cases. Uh, And using the techniques we learned from Ben helped us make that transition. It was a really great conversation. He shared a lot, and I hope you tune in next week on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.